Welcome to the State of the Lakers show on Dash Radio. Today is Tuesday mm-hmm. after our first preseason game, first Lakers game of the 2021-2022 season. Raj, how you doing, man? Did it feel good to be in Staples Center in front of all those thousands of fans? It felt amazing, and it's great to be back uh, after an actual game. We get actual film. I know uh, Jason and I watched probably way too much of that of that uh, preseason game. But the first thing I want to say is I have pushed the crow to the other side of the table. <laughs> it is on your side now. So um, it is not in front of me, at least for the moment. Um, so I know that I know that you were prepared. Uh, I would like my apologies now. You know, like DeAndre Jordan did start, as I said he would, um, next to AD. There are There's context to that, of course. Um, but yeah, the crow is on the other side. How does that feel? You are absolutely correct. Our first Lakers game involved Anthony Davis at the four. So technically, technically for the moment, you are correct. Um, it was it was in general a very weird preseason game for all the reasons that preseason games are always weird. Like for instance, you had uh, no tr- like literally no forwards playing for the Lakers other than Anthony Davis, uh, which inherently made it so that the Lakers had to play small most of the night, which we'll talk about led to uh, uh, pretty predictable rebounding problems. And that's the kind of thing you'll only see in the preseason because any NBA team that encounters that problem in the regular season, if you had a decimated front court, would you know sign a, a two way, bring up a two way player, or you know have uh, you know a couple veteran minimum signings to try to fill in until guys could get healthy. But that just wasn't going to happen in a preseason situation. Then you had the classic stuff like referees overdoing the points of emphasis and getting, you know, because they view the preseason as an opportunity to establish new, you know, protocols and things like that, which I thought was super annoying because like juxtaposed with the NBA finals, you know, a few months ago and the stuff that they're letting go all over the floor to suddenly like Anthony Davis reverse pivot travel, like every single pick and roll illegal screen. Like I think Nick Claxton got called for four illegal screens in the first half of that game. Like it was just incredibly sloppy and, you know, just in general, both teams were playing really hard. I thought, uh, which was kind of refreshing to see, but like there's that classic, I think it's a, a John Wooden saying, but it's like like activity with production. Don't confuse those two things. Like both teams are running around a lot, but like they're like in terms of what they were supposed to do within their scheme, I thought everybody was sloppy. Um, but anyway, it was fun. What was it like in the arena as a as a Laker fan to see the fans back? Yeah, it was it was really great. I've never really been been that close up before, so it was really cool. Watching the play, players warm up, you know, getting to see Kevin Durant, who didn't play, but just getting to watch him shoot, watching a guy who's so good at his craft kind of work on it, seeing Wayne Ellington work on shots that he gets in games. You know, that was really cool, seeing all the players work with the trainers, got to see Baysmore as well, all the fans. I believe it was at full capacity, um, just we didn't get a super sellout because of it being preseason. But it was fun, man, just to be up close. Uh, you get to hear things that you probably <laughs> – don't get to hear if you're if you're far back you get to hear them screaming like ice coverages and you know you're by yourself and you know all those kind of things that are really cool hear the ball kind of bouncing on the court there's nothing like staples center to me have you been to staples center before seen a game in staples not an nba game but i did see an elite eight game from the ncaa okay. tournament there it is like when you get in there and you get underneath those banners, there's just like this feeling of history that uh, as a basketball fan, I absolutely loved it. Uh, I think there were some Clipper fans over the summer that were talking trash about Staples as an arena. And I wanted to be like, man, you got to factor in the historical elements here. Like, even if it's dumpy in some ways compared to the better arenas around the country, like there's history here and that matters, you know, like that has to factor in to some extent. Yeah, not just that. Staples is a stage, right? Like while I was, while I was there watching the game, I was just thinking like this is the perfect stage for a guy like Westbrook, for a guy like LeBron. It's just a stage when you're watching the lighting, all of it. It feels like a theater performance, even though it's a preseason game. You still kind of get that excitement. Um, yeah, it was just fun to be to be in the building, and uh, we missed that last year. Um, the crowd wasn't there for a lot of the season, and I think that did have an impact. You just see the guys excited and, and to be up that close, that was that was fun. So it was a great experience. Hope to be at a bunch more games this year, too. So, um, yeah, it was fun, man. I, I I hope everyone can go out to a game this year. Um, be safe, but go out there and uh, have a good time at the game. 
Yeah, I was planning on uh, going to Wednesday's game in Phoenix because uh, it was oh, yeah. at an interesting time in the day that I might have been able to make it. But as as fate would have it, I I, I think I told you I was uh, considering coaching some high school basketball this year. Well, I, I yeah. ended up taking the a gig with uh, oh, nice. with the varsity team here in town. So. I've got practice on Wednesday, so that might occasionally cause some issues with our post-game shows, but I'm hoping that it only will happen a couple times this year just because, for the most part, because they're a West Coast team, their games start so late in the day. Anyway, so uh, we're going to get started. The, our game plan today, in terms of breaking down the game, is we're going to each provide uh, three things that we were impressed by and then three things that we thought the Lakers really needed to work on. And then obviously if we have some overlap, because him and I have, uh, Raj and I have not uh, uh, discussed it at all, um, uh, if we have any overlap, we'll, we'll just kind of uh, approach that as we get there. Anyway, Raj, why don't you start us off with the first thing that you were impressed by from the Lakers in their preseason opener? So I'll just continue on from my, like, summer uh, preaches. Like, I loved Wayne Ellington on offense. Like, obviously, there's defensive stuff to figure out. And, again, this is stuff we like. So on offense, he just – a different caliber of shooter that we've ever had, right? Like, they run sets for him. Teams chase him. And, like, teams don't just chase him. Teams are told, like, you don't leave this guy. Like, you are not part of the help responsibility. Like, it's your job to stick with him. Um, the Lakers used to run this play for KCP a ton where they would start him in the corner – Right, he'd come off these two stagger screens, but the second screen is becomes a dribble handoff with the big, and guys like KCP, guys like Avery Bradley would dribble into like the mid range. Ellington is firing from three off the handoff. You know what I mean? It's just a different caliber. Um, when guys go under, he's immediately going up. Super technical shooter as well. His feet are set. Again, like being at the game, watching him practice these threes, like you could see why he's so comfortable in game taking them. All these things are are part of a bunch of reps that he's already done, um, coming off these little kind of flare screens as well, um, firing right away. It's just nice to have a shooter of this caliber. He didn't shoot as well. I think he was like two for seven or something from three. But all the shots that like I loved him taking, he takes these transition threes. Like I think Rondo hit him in stride on one of them where like he was coming up in transition, one dribble pull up from three. And that's just a different type of shooter that we have. Um, yeah, that's my first one. I, I love Ellington offense. I, I love what he's going to open up. I think him and Bazemore were probably most affected by not having our star creators out there, right? They, I think Ellington played best when it was Rondo next to him, just a guy that finds him. But I would love to see him with our stars. But yeah, there's defensive concerns, but I love what he brings as a shooter to our team. Yeah, I think everything that we saw from that game uh, needs to be viewed through the lens of what it would look like with either Russell Westbrook or LeBron James on the floor, because that's just yeah. the reality of how this is going to actually shape out in the season. You know, uh, in general with Ellington, I look more at the way he affects the defense than I do the result. The result is what it is. You know, like right. he's going to take four or five threes every game and he's going to make two or three of them. That's the, that, that's the reality. But on the scoreboard, that's only going to manifest as, you know, six points, nine points, you know, whatever it is. So the things that I look more with Ellington are what does he cause the help defenders to do? Because that's the kind of thing that's going to impact LeBron and Russell Westbrook's ability, Anthony Davis's ability to pressure the rim. And then secondly, what can he do when he's attacking closeouts? Because the reality is, is any good defense is going to run him off the line, at least most of the time. So there was one play in particular, and I posted it on my Twitter feed. You guys can find it there. But it's that exact play you're talking about, that KCP play where he comes out of the corner off of a double screen. And, you know, the second screen is being set by DeAndre Jordan's man. And the right. reason why DeAndre Jordan uh, is being set by DeAndre Jordan, DeAndre Jordan's man has to be up at that screen. The reason why is he's there to deter a curl. When you have a shooter as good as Ellington, if he curls around that screen and the guy has to be chasing him over the top, it's going to allow him just to, to continue around the screen into the lane and get a wide open 15 footer or force that's another help defender to step up so he can either drop it off or kick it to the corner. So you have that other big up at the screen to deter the curl. And if you look at the play, I even took a freeze frame of it. DeAndre Jordan and DeAndre Jordan's man are out of the paint. That's an example of gravity from Ellington that literally impacts two defensive players, the guy who's guarding Ellington and the guy who's guarding his screener. And on that particular play, Kendrick Nunn kind of ran into the paint and was a little bit uh, out of position, and it caused 
Uh, it caused the Baysmore, who was the ball handler, not to really have much of a driving lane. But you, they're, they're going to figure out that kind of stuff if he goes to the other corner and LeBron James has the ball or Russell Westbrook has the ball, there are clear driving lanes both to the strong side and to the weak side, which is the kind of thing that just didn't exist last year. So I, I, I And that's just one example, one play. But in general, Ellington's ability to force defenders to panic chase him all over the place is going to open things up for the offense. There was another one where he attacked a closeout where all he did was just kind of lean to the left and DeAndre Bembry like completely panicked, closed out to that side and gave up a straight line drive and he kicked it to Kendrick Nunn in the corner for a wide open three. Those are the kinds of things that neither of those plays ended in a made three for Ellington. However, they led to quality offense for the team. Um, The first good thing that I put, or technically it's the second good thing that I put, uh, but I'm going to piggyback off of your point, uh, is I thought that Bazemore, Ellington, Monk, and Nunn just added a whole other layer of sophistication to the offense. And, and And just in general, we saw a lot of things that we did not see in the previous two seasons. From Bazemore, I, I was really, really impressed by his slashing. And we're going to talk at the end of this uh, uh, this segment of the pod, we're going to do a little bit more of a deep dive into Bazemore and Ellington and Monk and Nunn just to talk about more of the intricacies of what they do. But I was impressed by Bazemore slashing. Ellington, we just talked about. Malik Monk's off-the-dribble shooting. I thought was a really, really interesting wrinkle in their in the pick-and-roll actions that they ran. And then uh, uh, Kendrick Nunn transition threes, the the floaters and little scoop shots that he had around the basket. That's like comprehensive type of finishing that we haven't had from guards in the past. Just in general, I was really impressed by the way that those four guys made offense look easy breezy in a way that it hasn't looked for the Lakers in the last couple of years. And when you add LeBron and Russ to that, it's just going to get even better. Yeah, that's something I had kind of uh, looked at as well. It's just a lot of ball handling that can score, right? They're not really great passers in a sense, but all those guys look to score. They all take it as like disrespectful almost if you close out under the three-point line. Like just watching in person, watching like Malik Monk dribble up. I think uh, I forgot who the guard was, but he was kind of behind the three-point line. He just pulled up and he nailed a three. Kendrick Nunn as well in transition. Guy was behind the three-point line, uh, just pulled up. Ellington as well. He, he feels that same way. So it's just cool to have off-the-dribble shooters, um, creators, and none of those guys are going to have to be primary creators. Like, like, that's the way I was watching this game. Like, THT was kind of put in, like, the LeBron and Russ role, right? And, like, to judge THT off of the LeBron and Russ role is probably kind of unfair as well. Um, And to judge any of those as, like, primary creators. So I agree with you. Just watching all of them be able to score, just – I'm not used to having this many off the dribble shot makers. You know, it's interesting to watch as well. I'm not really used to this many pull up jump shooters, um, guys who come off screens and just firing. Uh, I like what you talk about with Kendrick Nunn. I thought he got more comfortable as the game went on. He got more aggressive as a scorer. He was pulling up as well. So I agree with you. I think all those guys um, are going to have a big, going to have a big year, especially scoring off the bench. Um, so I guess my like second one, um, you talked about it a little bit. Was just uh, you talked about Monk being off the dribble. I thought I didn't know he was he had this much I guess off the dribble game. I don't know if you did, but like I didn't know he had this much creation and it really opened stuff up. They run like double double screens for him coming off uh, with Dwight and Bazemore. They had one play where he had one coming off and he hit the jumper off that. Um, he can run pick and roll as well. He had a nice pass to Dwight Howard uh, in the, in the pick and roll. So that was my second one. I didn't know that he had this off the dribble game, and I think it really opens things up. You're gonna have a big battle there for him, Nunn, Ellington, and Tht for minutes. But I think he has to play. Do you think he's like in the lead right now with all those cards? Because like that was my second one to me. I didn't know Monk had this much kind of off the dribble game, and being in person as well, I didn't know he was this vocal. Like he was a very vocal on defense as well, talking to the guys, saying, uh, telling them to communicate. I didn't know he was that type of player. So he was my second one there. I love Malik Monk on offense. Um, I think that's something we can take from the preseason. Uh, it's tough to really take a bunch of things. You don't really care about the score. Just look at things that can translate, right? And I think Monk's jumper just looks clean. Some dudes who go off the dribble, you can tell they're not really off the dribble players. They can dribble. Malik Monk looks like a guy who's very comfortable um, putting the ball on the floor, who, look, who looks very comfortable coming off screens and firing really comfortable just pulling up uh, off the dribble. So what do you think about Ling Monk? You talked about it a little bit, but I think his dribble game is just going to open things up for the team. 
the part you, you were mentioning about him being vocal is super interesting to me because that, to me, demonstrates care. Uh, we're going to talk yeah. probably at the end. Uh, uh, actually, it's one of the things I have for the three things to work on. But we're going to talk about the defense from the guards. Yeah. and it, what, it wasn't pretty for the most part. But at the yeah. end of the day, I think that that's the kind of thing that's going to take time through training camp to really establish. And uh, it all starts with, you know, giving a shit, which is something we, we talk about a lot on this podcast. And, and to be honest, I'm not terribly concerned about, uh, um, about them caring. And that's a good sign that Malik Monk was being very vocal on defense. That's a good sign. Yeah. As far as his uh, ball handling and shooting, you know, guard, guarding pick and rolls uh, are become infinitely more complicated through versatility. So, for instance, like how many times did we see Dennis Schroeder last year because he's not a good shooter? Uh, when he would run a side pick and roll, they'd ice him and basically allow him to take that you know pull up fifteen footer, which he made maybe thirty percent of the time. And then from up top, exact same thing. They're they're in a uh, a drop coverage, and and he's he's coming uh, over the screen, and the defender's going under, and there's just not really a whole lot there. Well, the guarding that uh, it becomes infinitely more complicated with an off the dribble shooter who's comfortable. Just in general, when you're playing individual defense, like when I when I think about guarding a guy, always the the, the toughest matchup for any defensive player is a player that is capable of driving to the basket, but also capable of pulling off the dribble from deep. Because you, as a defender, are constantly off balance because you're prepared to have to leave your feet to contest a shot. And that that little bit of hesitation, that little bit of off balance, opens up all of their dribble moves. And whereas if a player can't shoot, I can kind of camp on my heels, so to speak, being prepared just basically deciding whether or not I need to go left or right in a defensive slide and not have to worry about closing out because if he takes a shot, that's a win for me because I want him to shoot. See, that difference there psychologically has a huge impact. Throw in a ball screen, and now it's even more complicated because I literally have to chase you over the top. And if I literally have to chase you over the top, if they set a good screen, that's automatic separation and an automatic head of steam going towards the rim. There was a sequence there with uh, Malik Monk, I believe it was in the second quarter, where he ran a pick and roll with Dwight Howard, and uh, uh, Dwight sets a really good screen, hits the point of attack defender, and LaMarcus Aldridge is way too low. And and Monk just settles into it like a 25-foot three, really balanced, and just, just nails it. So then on the very next possession, the guard does a much better job of chasing over the top. And because he has to chase over the top, Monk gets ahead of steam into the lane. Gets into the lane, easy pocket pass to Dwight Howard, who gets fouled. And then there was a couple possessions later, another pick and roll, same exact thing. The the big hangs a little bit too far back. The guard does chase over the top, but Dwight does get a good screen on him, and Monk pulls up from, I think, 17 feet on the left elbow and just nails it. Those are the kinds of things where, like, that is high-quality offense that doesn't require LeBron or Russ to initiate, and it's all set up by the fact that you have a good screen-and-roll guy and a guy who can pull off the dribble comfortably out to 25 feet. That sort of thing just is extremely difficult to, to guard at the NBA level. And I, I was, in general, really, really impressed uh, uh, by what Malik Monk brought to the table. We're going to talk more about their defense later. I don't want to focus on that right now. Yeah. But strictly on the offensive end, uh, that that type of uh, initiation. And I think I think uh, Kendrick Nunn has some of that as well in his game that he didn't really have an opportunity to show yesterday yet. Or excuse me, Sunday yet. But I, I, I was really impressed uh, by that with Malik Monk. Did you have anything else you wanted to add with Malik Monk before we end, uh, move on? No, I thought I thought he was good. Um, I thought it was great to just. He seems like another like a fan favorite already, right? And also like his his wingspan. I was looking up. It's only six four, but just in person, it just feels longer. I guess his arms feel like they go down longer than, than it seems. He's very active as well. I think um, some of that's because he's skinny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that must be what it is. Uh, but but yeah, just in person, he just seems like a very active player. Um, and it was cool to watch him just be super vocal, which you just don't see usually from young guys like that. Uh, on this kind of veteran team. So yeah, I'm excited from Link Monk. I thought he had a nice, uh, nice showing in that first game. So the second good thing that I put down, uh, was I just labeled it as good THT. Cause I have a, on the bad side, I have bad THT, but we'll get to yeah. that. 
So the things that I really appreciated from THT last uh, uh, on Sunday was his point of attack defense. Um, he's still extremely disruptive on the ball, especially when guys are indecisive. Like when guys want to try to mix him up, he's really good at getting his hands in there. Um, and then the other thing I put was relentless rim pressure. You know, a lot of it was over penetration. And there are some things that we're going to talk about in the uh, uh, later on that have to do with him making easy reads. This is something that was a concern for him coming into the season. Um, but at the end of the day, there are times against really good defenses in particular where the easy reads aren't there. And sometimes you just need somebody, and LeBron's really good at this in particular. Anthony Davis does it more as a rebounder than he does as, a, as an initiator. But sometimes you just need to put your head down and just get to the damn rim somehow. Like, like you just need to plow through guys and hopefully get enough pressure on the rim that it can generate some quality shots when the really elite defenses are taking away the easy reads. And THT still cannot be stopped uh, like at, at that initial drive uh, position, like his problems never had anything to do with beating that first guy. It was right. all like he would drive into too much traffic and he would get stripped by the second defender or the third defender. That kind of thing we can work on the, the ability for THT to beat every single point of attack defender and to, to get a step and get headed towards the paint. That is something that can translate to good offense, um, especially I think you'll see him a lot more as a closeout attacker this year, which is something we talked about early in the season last year. But that THT still with his low center of gravity, his good strength and his athleticism is still just a huge problem uh, for teams keeping him out of the paint. What did you see from THT on the good side of things? Yeah, so again, just being there, like, THT exudes this, like, confidence, this, like, veteran kind of feel already, and you forget that he's 20 years old, just the way he kind of carries himself, so just want to start with that, it's really cool to watch him grow, and his body is definitely different, like, you could totally tell, and it's totally impacted everything. You talked about his point of attack defense, I thought him going around screens was much better in this game, I know it's only preseason, but, like, the term is called, like, getting skinny, right, so when you're going around a, when you're going around a screen, you want to kind of get skinny, and uh, I know the refs were kind of calling a lot of things, but he drew three offensive fouls on movie screens just because he was fighting over it. I thought that was a big step for him. On offense, like, again, I talked about this earlier, and you said this, everything needs to be kind of seen through this lens of next to LeBron and Russell Westbrook, right? Because all those three will be, those two will be playing most of the game. So the ball handling duties will be on them. And I thought THC's best moments last night were when he was the guy attacking an already collapsed defense, right? Like his dunk, his dunk was on a play where Bazemore drove, collapsed the defense, kicked it out to him, and then he attacked the defense that was already rotating. A um, couple possessions later, he got a layup where the I think it was goaltender or something. That was where AD pushed it, right? And he got a handoff of AD and drove. And again, the defense was kind of worried about AD. And I thought his third nice play was like where he got a spin and got fouled, but that was when Rondo pushed it up to, I believe it was Monk, who hit THT as the trailer there, and he did like a... Behind, I don't know, it was a spin behind the back, whatever. I don't know what he, whatever he was doing, but he got fouled on that. So that's what I want to see with him. I, I liked him as a, an attacker of an already compromised defense where he doesn't have to be the first attack, right? Because when you're the first to attack, it's your, it's your job to make the right decision, right? To where to pass to, who's open. But if he's already attacking already compromised defense, he can just attack the rim. You have to stop him after already trying to rotate to a shooter or trying to rotate to AD rolling or rotate to LeBron, whatever. And then he's coming down the lane with his kind of herky-jerky game. You know, he does those weird layups. Um, he protects the ball really nicely when he, when he gets to the basket and draws fouls that way. So I liked him scoring that way. And again, I thought his defense was good. So um, I agree with you. I, I like what I saw from, uh, from THT there. That's a, yeah, that, that's a really good point as it pertains to uh, taking away the decision-making process, essentially, at this stage of his career. It's kind yeah. of a delicate balance because, you know, he needs reps in order For to sure. learn how to make those decisions. But at the same time, you kind of need him to learn how to play off of the stars. So my guess is that what you'll end up seeing is kind of what you saw in that game, which is in the games where stars sit, because of load management or injuries or whatever it may be, I think you'll lean heavily on him as a decision maker just so he can get reps. And then obviously when the guys are healthy, he'll play more, uh, you know, as a guy who attacks the already compromised defense. 
you mentioned one other thing that I did not actually put on my list, uh, but I wanted to bring up that you reminded me is just in general the uh, pushing the ball in transition. Yeah. Every time, almost every time that they advanced the ball, like the whoever would uh, get the ball out of bounds on a, a made shot or whoever would get the rebound and kick to the guard, they would make that push ahead pass, that like Lonzo ball pass that that we used to see a lot uh, when he was a Laker. That kind of thing just it, it causes chaos, and then you can capitalize on the chaos. The one example I'll give is uh, there was a play. I don't remember who the push ahead guard was, but there was Bazemore in the left corner. And uh, uh, that push ahead to Bazemore in the left corner forced LaMarcus Aldridge to close out because Bazemore's man was not back. And when LaMarcus Aldridge closed out, Bazemore saw DeAndre Jordan running down the lane and just threw it up and he dunked it uh, for an and one. And that's an example of, of, of uh, generating easy shots. This is a theme that we're going to talk about uh, when we talk about bad THT. But like uh, good offense isn't about making one good play. It's about understanding that over the course of a game, you need to generate 80 to 90, potentially more depending on the pace of the game, but 80 to 90 high quality possessions. And so there are going to be possessions in that set where the defense is really locked in and you're in the half court and nothing's easy and you really need to manufacture something uh, easy. So what that means is when they do make mistakes, when you can beat them down the floor, when you can make an easy read, you absolutely have to capitalize on it because those are the ones that you need to buffer and cancel out the tougher possessions where you're dragged down into the half court. And and that pushing in transition is the easiest way to do that. And I thought the Lakers, just in general, did a really good job yesterday of pushing the ball in transition. And it helps to have so many guys who can handle the ball. Because what you did, it was harder when you'd push the ball up the floor and it'd be Wesley Matthews. Or you'd push the ball up the floor and it would be, you know, uh, uh, an inferior ball handler, someone like, you know, even Kyle Kuzma, like struggled with that a lot. Having these guards who can all make decisions and put the ball on the floor, make it easier to push the ball up the floor because the guy running the wing is capable of making a complicated dribble move and making a complicated read, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And we kind of saw Rondo in that Westbrook role, right, where he was the one kind of pushing it up. And you see remnants of like what Vogel was talking about, where they want to be like a full time transition team, right? They want to get most of their points in transition. And and again, I think the stats say you get at most 30 percent of your if you can, if you're running on every play, which Westbrook does. But still, you get like 30 percent of your buckets in transition. But you kind of see that the remnants of it. You saw Ellington and a base more sprinting to corners. And I think you talked about as well, like DeAndre Jordan sprinting to the lane and getting the lob dunk as AD is the trailer. So you see a little bit of it. I think you'll see it more when LeBron and Russ play. But uh, yeah, you're right. I love seeing them push the ball a little bit. You can kind of see uh, what they're trying to do with that. Um, I guess my final kind of what I liked um, about the about the game was seeing Dwight Howard back. Um, his energy is still super infectious and it even comes off even more when you're there. You see him kind of screaming and running and all the stuff they don't see, show on TV where like, he he hits a he makes a layup off offensive rebound and he's screaming for the next five to ten seconds you know uh, of that play um, and he's really in with his teammates and you see it in the timeouts as well going up to every single player kind of giving them encouragement so it was cool to see him it was funny because the game started obviously with Lamarcus Aldridge right and DeAndre Jordan and both of them looked very comfortable with like both of you <laughs> like they both told each other hey like let's chill you know what I mean like let's both of us kind of. We know we know what the deal is. It's preseason. Like we're both gonna kind of chill. Lamarcus Aldridge looked comfortable as hell. He was hitting his jumpers in the mid range, kind of getting to where he wants. DeAndre Jordan, you know, he didn't look great, and he's getting the flag as he, I guess, he should. But he didn't look like he was going at any kind of energy level. And then Dwight Howard checks in, <laughs> and then uh, you can see the look on Lamarcus Aldridge's face just being there. Dwight Howard is like sprinting right from one end to the other, and I could see Aldridge just looking at Dwight like what are you doing, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Like, it's, it's preseason, um, so it's cool to see his, his energy back. I like him as, like, when you have these bucket getters, having, like, a good screen setter, I think really helps. Dwight, I think we talked about it earlier, the screens he was setting from League Monk, screens he sets for Wayne Ellington, just he's, he's really smart with it, too. Like, he'll set the screen and then roll, so it kind of takes both defenders with him. You know, he's just very smart with those kind of things. He has all the tricks up the sleeve. 
Um, he's still got a bunch of offense rebounds because he just knows how to kind of push players, what to get away with. And uh, I just missed having him on the team, and I'm glad he's back. He looks the exact. He looks pretty close to the player he was that year. He had a lot of fouls that I know people were kind of on him on his six fouls, but just being there, a lot of those fouls felt like they could have gone either way. Honestly, a lot of contact that the ref was kind of, I don't know trying to show that that contact is not allowed for some reason or or whatever but I just like what I saw from him um I thought he was I thought the gap between him and DeAndre is kind of sizable at least for right now like you could tell his impact uh is still there so what do you think of Dwight because I thought he had a yeah I thought he had a really nice first showing yeah the 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 third good thing that I put down was that our vertical presence was back um uh I I was impressed by both guys in a lot of ways uh, because I was going to cut them slack for the obvious things that people were going to pick apart. Like I didn't watch the game live because I had a men's league game that I had to go to um, that was all the way across town. So it was like a two hour adventure. And uh, when I got back, I didn't get a chance to watch it until the following morning. And so all I saw was was what was on Twitter. And on Twitter, I saw people complaining about DeAndre Jordan and, and, and Dwight Howard as well. And I wanted to be like, okay, you know, what are you asking Dwight Howard and, and uh, DeAndre Jordan to do? Be backline defenders, right? And, and then to also be kind of rim spacers. And they're out there playing with absolutely no passing. And I think, you know, when Rondo got out there, you immediately saw Dwight get a deep seal and a layup. Yeah. That Those are the kinds of things where, like, you need IQ surrounding those guys to bring the best out of them and then uh just in general like you know it's there's such an obvious better fit for this team's identity you know a guy like Montrez Harrell is obviously going to be better as like an active offensive rebounder he's obviously going to be better if in the event that you need to attack mismatches right switching defense you know guard gets on him Trez is a guy you can throw the ball down to Dwight's probably not you know uh, uh DeAndre Jordan's probably not there are obvious advantages there Marcus all better shooter the guy who's a much better passer so if you're running the offense out of the top of the key from you know dribble handoffs and stuff like a guy like Marcus all is going to look better with the Golden State Warriors when you're running a million dribble handoffs with Steph and, and uh and Clay than it is with you know uh, an offense the way that this Laker team is built at the end of the day, though, what what the Lakers need out of that position is that uh, that vertical spacing and that vertical presence defensively because you're funneling guys into the paint. So you need guys who can jump and, and deter guys at the rim. And then offensively, you've got all these passers who are looking for an option when they get into the lane to either drop off to somebody or throw it up uh, around the rim. So it was just refreshing for me in general to see that. Uh, DeAndre Jordan needs to do a better job of running the floor. That's just, that's, I, I called that out this morning. It was one of the biggest things I noticed is like when he was in the half court, I actually thought he was pretty good defensively. Uh, he blocked a couple of shots and deterred yeah. several others. There were a bunch of plays where guys would cut to the basket and beat someone back door or something, but DeAndre Jordan would be waiting there. And so they dribble it back out. Like that's something that doesn't show up in the box score, but that actually matters because it saved a defensive breakdown. So I actually thought he was good in the half court. He struggled in transition because he just wasn't running hard enough. That's something that's probably a part of its conditioning. There was uh, um, Mike Trudell specifically mentioned that uh, on the LFR pod that his, uh, that traditionally guys have a light day before a game and DeAndre yeah. Jordan's been in a rough week of practice and they practiced the previous day. So he's not like his legs aren't underneath him. So there's some stuff to, to, to uh, like kind of uh, to factor in there, if that makes sense. Dwight Howard, same old Dwight stuff, like, you know, silly fouls, uh, things along those lines, a little bit, a little bit too overzealous offensively. A couple plays where like he tried to make something out of nothing on a post up where he probably should just kick it out to the guards and set another screen, you know, but I am like, I saw the DeAndre Jordan and Dwight thing and I was super happy with it because one DeAndre is not going to play that much. So whatever you get out of him is, is gravy. Uh, and two, uh, I still absolutely love Dwight Howard for 20 minutes a game playing alongside Le- LeBron and Anthony Davis. I just think he's a seamless fit who is a, who, who brings mostly good to the table and is an awesome, like he's just, he's just, he's just the perfect guy to have that curveball for we're going to go big. You know, if, if AD is going to be at the four, Dwight's the guy that I want there next to him. I just think, I think he's the, a natural fit in that position. So, yeah, um, sure. did you have any other good things or are we moving on to the bad things? 
Uh, yeah, I think that was most of the good things. And you talked about DeAndre not running the floor. Like, he was definitely in that, like, let me give the least amount of energy, you know, possible while still being able to look kind of like I'm on the floor. Like, both of those blocks were him just like, because the coverage, I mean, they're going to be in this kind of drop back coverage, right? Where, like, he's trying to protect from the lob while also just making sure the guard doesn't get to the rim. Like, that's his defensive coverage. Like, expecting DeAndre Jordan to go out and switch is just not feasible, right? That's a position he's going to be in and I thought he did his job like his job is to make sure that lob is taken away and make sure the guard doesn't just get to the rim and if they're going to get a, if they're going to shoot a floater I think Bazemore talked about this at his press conference but he's like if those guards are going to shoot floaters over DeAndre Jordan and AD and Dwight all night you live with those results because they're not going to make a good enough percentage of them I thought the Nets hit some tough ones there was one where like DeAndre Benbury banked in this floater over Dwight Howard I don't know if you remember that one yeah, but I, saw that one. Yeah, I remember seeing that one in person I'm like what the hell but uh but yeah so like if they make those then they make those but i thought he kind of did his job he's not this big like switchable kind of big defender be out there five ten minutes give ad a break from being the center that's his job and i think he'll do that um in real games so i think we saw a good showing though we can kind of move on uh to the really quick really quickly just to piggyback on that like like when you play portland for instance you expect some shot making like there's you play solid defense and they're going to make some shots with hands in their face. Like, you know, Brooklyn's kind of the same way, you know, even with their bench guys like that. uh, I think his name is Cam Johnson. I could be wrong about that, but he was lighting up Ellington in the first half, making all these like off the dribble jump shots. And it's like at the end of the day, you know, yeah, you can pressure him a little bit more, make him feel uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. But like, Part of the deal with teams like that is that you you make them take a ton of contested jump shots and you live with the results. They're going to make some. The reason why they lost, you know, the reason why they kind of trailed most of the game was the physical dominance, which we'll get to in a minute. Like they were just really small because they were missing all their forwards. And so they gave up a million offensive rebounds. And and just in general, they struggled with the physicality of the Nets because they were less athletic and smaller. That's to be expected when you're when all of your athleticism is sitting on the bench. You know what I mean? Uh, But just in general, like I I, I think you got to live with a certain amount of shot making. But anyway, go ahead and, and give us your first uh, three things. First of the three things that the Lakers needed to work on. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, just to close out that last part, it's crazy. We went through a whole, like, first game preseason recap, and we didn't even talk about Anthony Davis, <laughs> which is which is kind of which is kind of funny. Uh, we both bringed up, like, six things that didn't include him. So I, I guess AD was still at kind of like a 75% energy level, so I, I don't really have much on him. Uh, he was settling. He was against Paul Millsap and, uh, and taking jumpers and stuff like that. But I, I guess like the good first- defensively. I thought he looked good on defense. Yeah, um, he also was kind of in this, like, let me give as much energy, the least amount of energy possible. But, <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, also, like, when he got on some switches, he shut them down, you know, when the guards were against him and made them take tough shots. So, again, like, AD, it's tough to kind of judge him on there. It's just nice to see him out there. Um, but I guess, like, my first uh, one that they need to work on, they definitely need to, like, they, they did a lot of switching early. I don't know if you saw that, but it was a lot of, like, where the guard would end up on LaMarcus Aldridge, and then they did this, like, unnecessary doubling uh, right away, and it led to a bunch of open shots early. So I just think they need to kind of work on what they want to do defensively. Um, I think it's pretty clear they didn't want to leave the guard on Aldridge by themselves, but I thought it was just way too much double team. So what did you kind of see from the defense? Because I thought in the first quarter, at least, they were kind of confused on what they wanted to do. It was a lot of unnecessary kind of switches, and Brooklyn basically went to this like mismatch hunting. And again, it's preseason, hard to tell, but I think that's the first thing there. Even with the starting lineup, even with AD and DJ there, I thought it was a lot of times where like, THT would end up on LaMarcus Aldridge or, you know, like things like that would happen. So just need to clean that up, I guess. And I know Vogel will, um, after looking at this film, he probably hasn't turned this game off since then. So I'm sure, I'm sure he'll get into that. But what'd you see, I guess, from the defense overall? So the Lakers will do some switching this year by design. Um, yeah. that that's kind of the way that the roster has shaped up. Um, I see lineups like Russ, Bazemore, Ariza, LeBron, AD that could theoretically switch every screen. Um, But I don't think they were switching by design in that game in the first quarter. I think what happened was is they were in a drop coverage and the guards were getting caught way too easily on the screen and taking way too long to get over the top and it was forcing a switch. And the reason why you could tell is what would usually happen is the guard would chase over the top and eventually get back to the to the uh, offensive player, and then DeAndre Jordan or or Dwight or AD would point over to the to the other guy and ask for a switch because they thought it was too late at that point. 
And, you know, there's there's two sides to that, because some of that is like the big needs to, to the big needs to recover back. And then the some of that is the, the guard needs to fight better over the top. But the reality is, if you're playing Paul Millsap and LaMarcus Aldridge, you should never be switching small guys onto them because those are two specific power forwards that fit more into that Montrez Harrell type of mold that we talked about where they're not big defensive presences. They're not big rebounding presences, but what they are are guys offensively who if they get a small guy on them, they're almost a guaranteed basket. And so yeah. it's it's not the kind of thing that you would like to switch if you could avoid it. So uh, in general, I don't want to overthink it because I think some of this just takes time. But in ge- like, if you're in a drop coverage, it depends on the fact that the guard can fight over the top so that they don't have to switch because the, the, the big is going to kind of position himself between the rim and the offensive player. And then as soon as the, uh, the point of attack defender recovers, he recovers to the big. That's the way that that coverage works. And it's not going to work if the guard dies on every single screen. Now, some of this is these guys, these uh, uh, these guards that we have, like Ellington, like Monk, in the past haven't really been held to that high of a standard defensively. So there's going to be an adjustment period. Also, when you're thin, like a Malik Monk, it's a little bit easier to get caught on a on that type of screen. But I do think that through effort and focus and through reps, they can eventually figure that out. I do think that that's something that they can get better at. The other thing, too, is inevitably you're going to give up those kinds of switches occasionally during the game. Like even if you fight over three of the screens on that fourth one, maybe they catch you good and they get you switched and down on the block. So you have to double. And when they did those doubles in on Sunday, they were sloppy on that backside. There was one where uh, uh, they kicked out to Bruce Brown. Uh, Aldridge kicked out to Bruce Brown and Anthony Davis easily could have rotated over and swallowed up the shot, but he was kind of just an upright yeah. position. He wasn't in the defensive stance. He was slow to step over and Bruce Brown knocked down the three. The, that was always the strength of the Laker defense in the previous two years is okay. We had a breakdown and so we had to double. Now what do we do? Uh, what do we do on the back end? And they were always very sharp at that rotate and recover, rotate and recover, talking, making sure that everybody was just kind of on a string defensively. That comes in time. So I'm not terribly concerned about it in the preseason, but just in general, when you do give up those types of mismatches and you have to double, the Lakers got to really tighten things up on the back end as a rotating defense. No, yeah, I agree with that. And and they will. I mean, it's tough to kind of judge with the guards that they played, right? Kendrick Nunn is, I thought Kendrick Nunn had a pretty good defensive game, just like overall, I think he's a, I think he's a good defender. It's just he was too small sometimes. Like, again, when he's on, like, Aldridge or Millsap, um, he's just too small to kind of deal with them. They gave up a lot of offensive rebounds. Again, this goes back to my, like, give as much effort as you – the least amount of effort as you can. Like, DJ and AD wanted no part of, like, boxing out, right? They weren't trying to box out. They were just trying to jump up and kind of get the rebounds. And uh, they gave up a lot of offensive rebounds that way. One of them, I think, just, like, AD tried to jump up and get in and went to – I forgot the guy's name. And he got fouled shooting shooting the shot. So a lot of those kind of possessions happen. I, I expect those things to kind of clean up uh, as we go here. And, again, like, I don't, it's hard to judge any of this without – Russell Westbrook and LeBron on the floor. Like I need to see how the defense works with with them on the floor. So everything changes when those two get in there. And when AD's at the five as well, we saw some AD at the five, right? Like when uh, DJ was out, but uh, and when Dwight Howard wasn't on the floor. But I just want to see all of that together, and hopefully we do on Wednesday. Uh, what's your kind of first thing that uh, you dislike? So really quickly, just following up on what you just said, the in general when you're evaluating these preseason games, and the, the LFR pod did a good job of, of kind of describing this, but like. You're not really looking at the scoreboard because you're not fielding a real basketball team. So I look at two specific things. I look at individual skill sets. Like what am I what am I seeing out of an individual basketball player that translates to when you have the full team, which we'll we'll talk about even more when we dive into the guards uh, a little bit more. But the other thing is like specific lineups and uh, like that starting lineup, for instance, is a lineup you might occasionally see this year. A.D. with a center and three guards who can shoot and dribble you know that that's that's an example of something you can watch but watching the scoreboard in general is just kind of a fool's errand in that kind of uh, of environment when you're not fielding your real basketball team LeBron and Russ just do so much especially on the offensive end to to kind of just put guys in the right spot slotting them in the in the right spots my um uh uh second 
because uh, I put guards fighting over screens, which kind of piggybacks oh, on what yeah. you were saying. But the second thing I put for the three things to work on was guards missing box outs. I and you had mentioned this in in, in your last segment, but like I I counted missed box outs from every single guard, and yeah. that is just that is just little focus stuff that can't be let down. There was one where. There was one where Bazemore uh, 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 was guarding a man in the corner, and after the shot went up, he just turned towards the rim and started walking. And uh, um, uh, as soon as he walked in, the guy crashed right out of the corner and got an offensive rebound. There was a possession from THT, really, really well put together, where he bothers the ball handler at the point of attack, gets caught on the screen. They have to switch. Anthony Davis is the one who switches. So it's actually not that bad of a switch. And THT like set, squatted really low and, and, and prevented Paul Millsap from, from getting position. But then he got switched again onto a guard in the corner and the shot went up and he didn't box out and gave up an offensive rebound. The ball got knocked out of bounds. And it's like you did 95% of that possession, like an all defensive level defender. And you just missed the last arguably most important part. And that, that all is, is, is stuff that just needs to be tightened up. Uh, Malik Monk in particular was caught in a couple of physical mismatches where he'd be guarding. uh, I I'm terrible at remembering these, you know, G league level guys that are on the nets, but like he'd be guarding a six, six super athletic guard and he's six, three. And it's like, it's not enough to run up and put a forearm on him because if you run up and put a forearm on him, he's just going to bully you physically and get an offensive rebound on those guys that have that distinct size advantage. You need a really technically sound box out. You need to squat into a defensive stance, spread your arms and make him literally go over your back so that if he does get the offensive rebound, he gets called, you know, for the offensive foul. Those are the kinds of the kinds of things that, uh, that I noticed. And, you know, just in general, uh, um, uh, the effort I thought was there. It's just that little bit of focus. So I'm not concerned about it in the long run. It's just something that I noticed from the game that needs to be tightened up a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And I thought like, this is kind of the trade off, right? Like when you trade for like these kind of offensive, uh, these offensive focus guards, like the trade off is kind of the defensive, I don't know effort, but kind of the defensive focus, I guess, and guards who are kind of make their name on offense. It's going to take time uh, for those guys to kind of adjust adjust there um, on, on what they can do. So I agree with that. Um, and we'll see. Like, I, I feel like Vogel will be able to help them. Malik Monk reminds me a lot of, like, I guess where Kuzma was when, when he was uh, before he got with Vogel as well. Like, his, just his defensive kind of – not his – like how he how he defends, I guess, is just not technical. Like the way he tries to goes around screens. You talked about he gets caught a lot, and I think it'll be helped with Vogel. So I agree with that. I think they'll be better though. Uh, my third one, I guess, like my la- I think this is my third one that I want to see kind of worked on is uh, those like kind of. I know that we said Russ and LeBron are going to be on the floor a lot, but I do think we need to find a way to have some kind of shot creation when they're not on the floor. Like I. Like, I feel like I know THD is probably not the right guy for that, but we just need to find a way, whether it's Kendrick Nunn being the ball handler, just need to find a lineup that can create. Um, Russ and LeBron, again, will be on the floor for most of the time, but I just want to find a way to get enough good shot creation when they're not there. Like when it was AD at the starting lineup, and again, DeAndre Jordan probably won't start a lot of games, but or maybe he will, who knows. <laughs> but but uh, but but still, like the, I think we had like eight points or something through like a lot of the first quarter, you know, and just not getting good shots. And a lot of this, again, I talked about it, AD was kind of settling, took a lot of mid-range jumpers over Paul mm-hmm. Millsap, who should have Paul Millsap, who should have no business guarding Anthony Davis in any kind of setting. I don't care what, what season it is. Uh, but yeah, he took a but lot that, of mid-range. But that's AD. A- AD likes to do that. It just, it is what it is. He he does, but again, like just in that kind of setting, like it's Paul Millsap, like get to the rim, you know, like yeah. try to get to the basket, yeah. Like we said, go inside out, but but yeah, he, he does like to settle for that, but yeah, like that's. But uh, I would like I would like to see some way to get better shot creation. Maybe it's Kendrick Nunn. Like Kendrick Nunn started to get comfortable, he started to pull up, but he's not like a shot creator. He's kind of creates for more for himself. THC as well. We talked about him. Just need to find a lineup that can create without. Russ and Braun, at least for a few minutes there, I know they'll play a lot. So that was my kind of final, uh, if I want to nitpick um, in the preseason, first game of the preseason, um, uh, that would be like my final nitpick there. So I, I, I tend to agree that outside of LeBron, Russ, and Rondo who won't play, that, yeah. there's, that you don't have high-level passers on the roster. This is something that a lot of Laker outlets have been kind of harping on 
in the last few weeks. You have a bunch of kind of one-track mind type of offensive players. So I think the way you counter that is one by staggering and try to have LeBron and Russ on the floor as much as possible. But two, if you can't through resting or whatever it may be, load management injuries, you got to simplify their reads. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this when we get to my last thing, which has, has to do with THT. But like if you, so for instance, put Ellington in the strong side corner, have Dwight set the screen and try to go four out with the other guys. And get, you know, either Kendrick Nunn or Malik Monk with the ball in their hands and and make it really simple. Here comes the ball screen. If he goes under, you shoot it every single time. If he chases over the top, you continue to go down the lane and you either pass it into the pocket to Dwight or if the guy helps out of the corner, you kick it back to Ellington. Like, make it easy basketball. You know, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the biggest things that my last college coach that I played for used in order to try to help make help guys with easy reads is to play three on three. Uh, he would he would even if he had enough guys to play five and five, he'd set up three on three because mentally the game's just a little bit easier to process in three yeah. on three because it's it's just it you're you're taking away all of the complexities of 10 guys on the floor and it's like here's my defender here's the guy who's screening for me in his defender and here's the spot up shooter on the weak side and just making really really basic basketball decisions and repetitively making those decisions until you figure it out i think that's the way you do it is you, you ellington is a real easy strong side corner option because the guy's probably not going to help so it turns into a real true two-man game with your screener but if he does it's a really easy kick out to a really really good shooter those are the ways that you can simplify that Um, but I'm with you in general like in order in order for the non-LeBron minutes to be positive you either need to stagger like crazy and hope that Russ gives you an MVP caliber uh, season out of that uh, out of that type of role or you need to make it so that when Russ and LeBron are off the floor your guards are set up to succeed by simplifying their their decision making Um, the last thing that I put as a thing to work on was bad THT. Um, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it because it's things we've all mentioned decision-making like he just had a tendency to force things and, and, and pass up on easy options that were there. You know, a basketball player that's, that's forcing, uh, almost always leads to a bad outcome. And the, the reason why is pretty simple. When a basketball player is forcing, he becomes predictable. And so the point of attack defender has a really easy time staying in front of him, usually. Also, the refs can see when a player is forcing. If I, if I don't have a driving lane and I force the ball to the right and I just start plowing into the lane, the refs are naturally going to let a lot of contact go. The refs just kind of naturally benefit, or excuse me, will reward good basketball and will naturally punish bad basketball. It's like the player control foul. It's like when you, when you plow somebody over, even if the guy's moving his feet a little bit and he's kind of out of position, the, the ref's just going to kind of naturally be like, eh, like you're out of control going into the lane. So this looks like an offensive foul to me. You know, that's kind of the thing that you noticed a lot with THT in that game was just putting his head down and forcing his way into the lane and it leading to bad outcomes through refs letting contact go and defenders kind of being positioned between him and the rim. That's just something for him to work on. And then the last part I put there was failing to finish plays defensively, like lots of activity, really good disruption at the point of attack, switching and getting low and keeping the big from getting good post position and then missing a box out or, you know, making two rotations, but missing that third rotation. Those are the kinds of things that I'd like to see THT get better at is understanding that the defensive possession doesn't end until your team possesses the basketball. So what were the things that you were critical of with THT in that game? So like watching THT, I always think like, there's another universe where like THT is on some lottery team, right? And they're like, hey, you're our future, you know, and here's the ball and here's 30 pick and rolls a game. Get all the reps you want, you know, don't care about scoreboard, don't care about anything like this is built around you. You know, you choose where the passes go and we're just going to let you get all the reps in the world. And I relate to this to like, I think it was 2018 uh, before LeBron got here, obviously. And uh, we did that with Brandon Ingram, right? Like Luke Walton said here, Brandon Ingram, here's the ball. You have enough ball handling. We have Lonzo Ball next to you, but you're going to be the primary creator. Here's all the reps in the world. And it was ugly a lot of the times because it's Brandon Ingram. And THC is actually 
ahead of Ingram in terms of like just the you know ball handling and able to get to the rim and you know all that kind of stuff. He was ahead of Ingram. He just was. But now New Orleans is getting the fruit of that labor, right? Because now Ingram is, even though it's still not great, even though he's probably not a you know top level playoff team type of creator, but he's a good shot creator. And so that's how I kind of see with THT. Like he's not going to get the reps that these other players do, all these other lottery picks. And he wasn't a lottery pick, but you know, that type of talented player would get, he's not going to get those here. So again, like to me, he was in that LeBron Russ role last night and you put a 20 year old in a LeBron Russ role. So it's going to look like, like that's, that's the kind of basketball you're going to get when you get those guys being the main shot creator. So I agree with you. He has to become a better passer. He has to make the easy reads a little bit better, right? Like there was a there was one driver, like he drove and Bazemore was open in the corner and he got fouled on it. Like he did get fouled, but Bazemore was like having his hands up, you know, in the air. And then like, you know, when you clap, like when you don't get the ball and you're standing in the corner, it was one of those. And um, so so, so was a, there was a lot of little moments like that. Ellington was open. He didn't find him. And I don't expect him to make those complicated like drive. Where's the first help and second help coming from so i he it's a skip pass to the corner like i don't make him expect him to make those uh, but just like those i thought he had some nice dump off passes as well to dj and stuff like that but yeah like i agree with you he needs to work on his playmaking i just don't know if we'll see like that those advanced reads or even the advanced reads this year but i think he can get the simple ones down he'll get enough minutes to at least get those um next to russ and lebron and you can make those simple reads when you're attacking a compromised defense the the reads are a little bit easier. Those like first drive, okay, where's this help and where's the rotating rotation coming from? Those kind of things I think will be will take time. But I agree with you. Those are things he needs to work on. Yeah, the, like the classic example is that Ellington kick out that I posted on Twitter. Like it's yeah. this very simple basketball play. Like guy closes out on me and because he was kind of chasing over a screen, well, in this case, Ellington used a V cut to get open, but he caught and beat his man off the dribble because of his shooting ability. Then he just drove into the lane, and as soon as he got into the lane, there was a, a man who helped off a of Kendrick Nunn, and it was an easy kick out to the corner. That kind of basketball is easy, whereas if Ellington's you know coming off of a pick and roll as a ball handler, it's just a little bit more complicated. You know, in terms of there are pros and cons to to THT's development. He's not getting reps on a bad team to learn how to be an advanced ball creator, the way uh, on ball creator, the way that uh, you know Brandon Ingram did. But if you watch Brandon Ingram now, he struggles in a lot of the, you know, kind of uh, fundamental role player type things. Like he's not very good defensively because he's been on team. He's been on teams where he's been asked to just create everything offensively and kind of whatever you give us defensively is good, you know, or let's say, for instance, that the Pelicans had gotten Kyle Lowry and they were considered more of a championship type favorite. Like Brandon Ingram would have been forced to do a lot more off the basketball. That's an element of his game that hasn't really been developed over the years. You know, THT, for what it's worth, with the reps that he's missing as an on-ball creator, he's getting reps as an off-ball type of role player. And in the future, when he is on a team where he's the second or third best player on a championship-level contender, it will benefit him that he knows how to play off the ball and that he is dialed in defensively. Those kinds of things, there there are long-term advantages to that. So... I, I do think that that's worth pointing out. Um, so we got about seven minutes. I wanted to, we may not have time to deep dive into each of these players, and we'll do it more as we go through the preseason. I had a, a, a specific topic that I wanted to talk about with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about how the point of attack defense this year is not as good. And... You know, the the example that most people were using from uh, Sunday's game was Ellington and the fact that that Cam Thomas or whatever his name was, was was lighting him up and and getting decent shots off the dribble and getting by him. I think I there's and I could just be overly optimistic here, but the reason why I'm not necessarily concerned about it is I care so much more about reactionary defense then point of attack defense because of the fact that when you get to the highest levels in the finals and in the conference finals, you're not keeping anybody, these superstars in front, like, okay. Yeah. Like Ellington struggles to stay in front of cam Thomas, but like LeBron would struggle to stay in front of Kyrie Irving. So like the, when you're in that series, the Brooklyn's going to compromise you like they're just going to if you're playing the Clippers for instance let's say they play the Clippers in the conference finals like you don't think Reggie Jackson and Paul George are going to beat guys off the dribble like I don't care if you're playing Bazemore and Ariza and Russ and you keep all your weak defenders on the bench those they're you're going to give up straight line drives it's just kind of the the nature 
of uh, of trying to guard these top tier teams. So what matters more to me is how you recover and react to that kind of stuff. So like, I don't care as much about Ellington's ability to keep somebody in front as long as he's dialed in in the rotations. Because you will be able to double, you will be able to send help, and as long as once the ball is given up, Ellington sprints to the next shooter, it'll work. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that I think matters more. Does that make sense to me, or to you, I should say? Yeah, for sure. The playoffs become this like mismatch hunting kind of thing, right? Where it's like, you're kind of as good as your weakest defender in, in that kind of way. So. To me, it's all about health defense as well. Like, how did how did the Clippers, I guess, beat Utah, right? Like, they went into this, like, they knew that they would not switch with Gobert, right? So, like, Gobert, just they just don't switch with him. So, they would call his man up, drive by, kick, kick all the way, and get, get three-point shots off that. Ellington and Monk are not going to stay in front of defenders. Like, I don't expect them to. I don't expect them to be, like, Alex Crusoe-level defenders. Like, that's not fair. Um, but, like, I think when you put guys in specialized roles, they can succeed. So, like... If they're going to run this, like, drop ice coverage, then they just run that. You know, just be very clear. Hey, you push your guy away from the screen, and we'll handle the rest. You know what I mean? Like, just do your job there. Putting Ellington on some guy and telling him to shut him down, that's just not feasible. Malik Monk as well. Kendrick Nunn as well. Those guys, you just don't do that. Like, our starting lineup will be Russ, Braun, and AD, right? And that's – Braun and AD are good enough health defenders to me to be able to cover a lot of things like that, to cover – gaps in that way we had a small guard like i think dennis Schroeder is a good defender he's a super small guard right he's a super small guard the lakes were able to kind of cover that have the number one defense last year still so i I agree with you i think it is it is overstated but i do think it still matters i don't think you can have like four bad point of attack defenders together right like especially in closing lineups like we're not going to see none and ellington probably close games right you probably won't see that like it'll be against second units where you kind of you can kind of live with that, um, but I think you can't have like more than you can have like three or four bad point of attack defenders in your closing lineup. To me, like I feel like that's where you kind of have to you have to make sure you have really great defenders there. But yeah, I think it's overstated. I think what they bring on offense more than makes up for the defensive drop. They're like their threats as offensive players makes up for that, and that's the trade off that the Lakers did this off season. And uh, I think it is worth it. Like I think that's what we'll see. There might be a little drop on defense in that point of attack, but. I think the Lakers have more than enough players to cover up for it. So, but we'll see. That's a good point about not being able to, or not it not being a good idea to put multiple of of them on the on the floor at the same time. I mean, I, I was actually planning on talking about this today. We didn't really have time, but like uh, aggregate athleticism and aggregate size matters to me because, like, so for instance, like we got bullied physically by Brooklyn, who's not a physically dominating team because we had no forwards in the game. So we were playing basically either four guards in a center or three guards and and AD in a center. That was basically what we did all game long. And, you know, Bazemore was probably the biggest uh, uh, guard that we would play in one of those positions. So the aggregate athleticism and physicality in that lineup is poor. You know, like, but, you know, like Ellington getting physically bullied is going to be more noticeable in a lineup like that. Whereas if he's in the starting lineup, the proposed starting lineup where he's with LeBron and he's with Russ and he's with AD and he's with Trevor Ariza, the, (coughs) excuse me, the aggregate athleticism of that group in totality makes up for it. It's like the Trey Young thing, you know, and we talked a little bit about this, I think in the last pot or the one before, but like there are you know, the defense, defense has always evolve as well as offense in the NBA, you know, uh, you know, all this off the dribble shooting and all of these comprehensive, uh, uh, offensive, you know, uh, evolutions over the last 10 years come hand in hand with defensive evolutions and switch attacking was inherently going to lead to a, a counter from defenses. And they exist now. We talked about that. You can do things to hide Trey young that three, four years ago you couldn't do. And so, again, it works as long as you have all those other small forwards like the Hawks have and you have Clint Capella under the rim. Like you as it the the aggregate total physicality of that defense made it so that Trey Young wasn't as much of a liability. And and so that's the way you got to make it make it work now. In general, what will be interesting to see is how often Frank plays two of those guards. Because the the three guards that I'm going to be looking at as guys who are huge liabilities are going to be Monk, Nunn, and Ellington. And I don't know that you can play two of them at the same time. But maybe maybe they do, and it's in the lineups with AD and Dwight. And then it's like you said, you simplify what you're asking them to do. Okay, I don't need you to 
be like a shutdown isolation defender. I just need you to force guys away from all screens so we can ice on the side so that forces guys into the rim. And we need you to chase guys off the line when you're closing out. Like you can simplify their role and then basically make it so that as long as they do these very simple things really well, then the totality of the scheme works because you have Anthony Davis and Dwight out there. Though that's the way that I would look at it in terms of like, uh, a way to play two of them at the same time. But honestly, I don't think you'll see two of them at the same time very often, especially since Frank said he plans on playing mellow a lot. So yeah. you're going to see a lot of mellow, uh, mellow and Ariza and, and Baysmore. That just means there's just not a ton of opportunity there for those guys to be out there, you know, in mass, if that makes sense. And I love that you brought up Trey young because like, yes, you can attack Trey young. Like they put him in the corner, right? Against some corner shooter. Usually that's what the Hawks do. You can try to attack Trey young, it's going to take like 15 seconds of your shot clock, just the way that the Hawks, you know, are able to switch and they know what they're doing. Same with same thing with the Lakers. I remember in the playoffs, like you would play Rondo a bunch. You could try to, you know, mismatch attack Rondo. It's going to take 15 seconds of your shot clock. And then it's also Anthony Davis is going to be waiting there. So like, yes, you can try to mismatch on against Rondo is a great example, by the way. I literally thought about that last night watching the game. I'm like, we did it with Rondo. Yeah, like so if you have Rondo on the floor, teams you can try to attack him, but like the Lakers, they know exactly what they do in that situation, right? It's not like they don't know they're gonna try to. So like Trey Young as well is the example there, Rondo as well. So like you can, it's gonna take it's why teams like that are able to do it. Um you go against schemes that aren't as good, I guess. Like it's it's tougher against good defenses, right? To mismatch hunt. Um I think also the Hawks kind of play two teams that were probably the least equipped to attack mismatches in the Knicks and the Sixers. Um but still though, like Trey Young is Trey Young. He's a short point guard who has a huge offensive, you know, load. You should be able to attack him, but they just couldn't because the Hawks are extremely good and they surround him with a bunch of wings um, who can defend in a, in a shot blocking center at the middle. So, and I think the Lakers kind of can do that as well to an even better extent. So I agree with you. It's hard to attack those. And I don't, but I still think you can't have like three or four bad point of bad point of attack defenders who just get beat off the dribble time and time and time again. Uh, but you can simplify their roles. You can have a good defense. That's like, I think we saw that last year. There was a musical chairs with the Lakers. Like you don't know who was playing night to night and they still kept, um, they still kept their defensive identity. So I agree with you on that. Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I think that's it. Uh, it was a fun game, that first game. Uh, Lakers play again tomorrow, I believe, at like 3 yep, o'clock. Tomorrow, 3 o'clock. Uh, Raj and I will most likely be recording on Thursday morning, I would assume. Um, yep. Possibly Friday, but we'll probably go for we'll probably shoot for Thursday so um, that we can get the guys at Dash Radio another show on Friday. Um, thank you guys so much for your support as always. Like I said, this will air on Dash Radio tomorrow at 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. Also, we will have the podcast version of this uploaded here within the next few minutes. Thank you guys as always for your support. We're in the mix of things now. We're looking forward to a lot of Laker basketball over the next, hopefully, uh, nine months or so. Um, all right, guys, everybody enjoy the rest of your day and we will see you on Thursday. Thanks, everyone.